0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the informational interview sponsored by the Actuarial Science Club here at Nebraska. Today, we have Max Rudolph. Max graduated from Michigan Technological University, and he is the founder and principal at Rudolph Financial Consulting, LLC. He is an adjunct professor at Creighton with his area of focus in applied portfolio management, Along with his consulting practice and professorship at Creighton, he served on the SOA's Board of Governors and has numerous publications in the risk management space. He is a Fellow of the Society of Actuaries, a Chartered Enterprise Risk Analyst, a member of the American Academy of Actuaries, and Chartered Financial Analyst. Max, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well, uh, Matt. Glad to be here with uh, with your students.
0: Well, we are very happy to have you on here today, and you know, thank you for coming on. on you know, during this crazy time, and we're hoping everyone is safe and healthy at home today, so thank you. Without further ado, um, could you tell me a little bit about yourself and your professional story?
1: Well, yeah, you, you hit on some of it in the, in the introduction, so, so that's, we'll, we'll go with that uh, to start off with, but uh, I grew up in the Detroit area, so that's how I ended up at, at Michigan Tech. It's a public university engineering school primarily, and then came out to Omaha from there. Uh, worked at Mutual Omaha for <clears throat> over 20 years. Had uh, experience on uh, pricing, valuation, projections. I started their their ALM program, and uh, they used the, the ERM template that that I had had developed, um, you know, for their uh, risk management program. Uh, since I've been a consultant, I've been doing uh, ERM work for insurance companies primarily, uh, and, and also doing the research. I did, I know, I know you're with Humana this summer. Um, one of the first research projects I did was to develop a process for health insurance companies to do their enterprise risk management. Uh, and that's been about 10 years ago now, but had an early interest in, in pandemics, uh, published a paper that a lot of the recent fellows used on the syllabus, uh, but was published like in 2004. Uh, also done papers on investing, uh, several on interest rates, uh, one last year on low growth, which we're are doing some publicity on over over the the recent year, and then uh, <clears throat> been moving over towards climate change uh, recently. I, I tend to be it seems like about five to ten years ahead of the risk that that actually happens. Um, another thing that I'm really proud of is my my annual financial predictions. I do a monthly newsletter that I post to my to my website or to LinkedIn, uh, and once a year I put Stuff out that actually stays on the record. I don't delete my my financial predictions, so you can go back and look and see what I was predicting in 2007 to see how well it predicted going forward, uh, as well as kind of the the current one. Um, you know, from uh, beyond being on the board, I was the investment section chair. Uh, I was actually I served on the uh, University of Nebraska chair committee. Uh, I've been on the CFA Nebraska board. And I have lots of presentations and articles. You know, my wife's an actuary with her own storied career. We've got two kids who have turned out really well. um, And that's probably enough. We have limited time.
0: No worries. You can go on and let (laughs) us know about everything. This is always incredibly interesting to see. Um, I always love asking the question. I'm sure as many people have noticed, this is the only repeat question that I typically ask people because everyone's story is different. And it's always cool to kind of see, you know, how everyone kind of started out and where they kind of ended up and, you know, where they went all in between. Because one of the big things about uh, actuaries is we always love seeing the end result. Um, and but one of the big things that we kind of need to take for granted is the journey that takes us to that end result. And it's always cool to see everyone's individual journey. So thank you very much for sharing that. Incredibly insightful. So you said that you've done a lot throughout your career. Um, so what are some fundamental principles that you used in choosing your career path as an actuary?
1: Well, I think the most important thing, and I, and I think this goes well beyond being being an actuary, but I think it's to be honest with your your clients and your employers. You know, you, you can you can word things in ways that that aren't designed to to be hurtful, um, but you still need to be honest, especially when you're looking at risk management. You want to be looking at uh, things that that could happen, and you don't want to ignore certain things. Um, you know, I, I know uh, pandemic has been one in the past that. You know, people will push back on, oh, that's not going to happen. You know, and you'll have that on your list. I've had other ones where companies were clearly taking basis risk. You know, where their assets were not aligned with with their liabilities, with their their hedging program, and and you say, well, you've got basis risk, and and they say, we don't want to hear about that. Or you see, you've got a big concentration. I had one uh, potential client that uh, they had a huge amount of Lehman Brothers in 2006. And when I tried to say something about that, they uh, um, essentially told me that's not what I was being hired for and that I should, uh, you know, kind of keep my mouth shut about that. And, you know, they were sold to another company two years later because when, when Lehman went under that was enough to essentially force them to to not be independent. Um, I think what's important is to be a lifelong learner, that you always want to be, working on something that interests you. So go out and, and read it. It frustrates me when I, when I talk to people that say, Oh, you know, that paper's too long. I don't want to read that, you know, but then they'll read a a publication just for fun. That's 500 pages long. It's like, okay, if there's something good to read, you know, you don't have to read it all in one night, spend some time uh, doing that on your own time. And, And sometimes you might not get supported by your company, uh, initially to to do some of this stuff. So sometimes you have to do some of this this learning on your own and just always be open to it. So I, I think those are kind of the, the basic principles that I stick with.
0: Gotcha. That's great to hear because um, one of the big things that we, as actuaries and as a population of, of people, is the common characteristic that I've noted time and time again is that we love to learn we love to keep growing ourselves and um, growing our responsibilities and no matter what field we are and it's you know it's incredible to see that that is definitely a common characteristic upon the people that have succeeded within the field and that's awesome to see throughout everything that we've kind of done and kind of interviewed with people Um, I also really love how you highlighted the fact about how if you want To grow and learn, you do have to go outside of those company hours and do it by yourself, because your company is going to provide you with the resources to succeed in your exams, make sure you pass those exams and also get your credentials and everything like that. But as we've seen in the actuarial profession, the exams don't do it all. I'm I'm sure as you've noticed um, and and kind of what you've been experienced with. Is that true?
1: Yeah, I think sometimes you have to go beyond what's on the current syllabus. I mean, I'll I'll tell people, and, and I had the same experience with the uh, the SOA syllabus, but it's a it's a more direct example on the on the CFA syllabus where um, they asked a question about how how would um, uh, an insurance company do asset liability management, and I went on and on <clears throat> talking about um, surplus duration. Which was not on the syllabus at all, and I got a zero on it for that, and, and failed because of that. Um, but I mean, I was kind of a, an expert in the area, and, and still am today. Um, but I failed, you know, because the the exam syllabus wasn't keeping up with current best practice. So sometimes you have to get beyond that that syllabus, um, and sometimes you even get beyond your comfort zone. Although. The other obvious follow-up from that is, you know, you wanna answer the question they ask you. <laughs> and answering it with, with stuff that the grader wasn't gonna know about probably wasn't helpful. It, it's interesting that I'm actually teaching a class that covers that material, and that material is now on the syllabus for the CFA. <laughs>
0: That's one of the big things is we have to change with the times and it's good to see that we've done that in the past, which is good. But um yeah, like you said, you have to be able to go above and beyond in order to really expose yourself to everything outside of the exams because the exams aren't going to cover everything we need to know as much as we'd really enjoy that. Um, we need to go out and still perform, you know, our educational duty to learn more about the material and everything like that. So thank you. So, currently, with the current crisis, um, do you expect that COVID will be the worst part of your career, both in the past and future? And if not, what was or what do you expect it will be?
1: Well, I kind of teed up this question ahead of time. So, I, I think you, you anticipated that I was going to say no. And, and that is what I'm going to say is that, you know, COVID, you should have had this on your scenario planned before. And I know um, I've had other speakers, you know, get mad at me because they'd say, oh, you know, my stress scenario for a pandemic is, you know, 0.1 deaths per 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 thousand of excess deaths. And, you know, if you go and look at the CDC moderate scenario or the severe scenario, you, you really want to look at something that's more in that 0.5 or, or even higher. Uh, deaths per thousand, just to to find out, and and you can do some easy things to to find out uh, on for life insurance, for example, um, just take your your face amount minus your life insurance reserves, and you know see what rate of excess deaths you have to have to use up your surplus. You know it's a it's a two minute calculation that you can do and and share with your board, and say okay, well we need to have you know in the U.S a hundred million people would have to die, you know, a third of the population. Well, that's probably not a risk you need to worry about if your surplus is that big. So it it allows you to prioritize your risk too. Um, But the, the, the risk event that I'm worried about is really one that's been been teed up over the last almost 40 years. We've moved towards um, not allowing people to fail and and we're afraid, we, we have this this tendency to say, we're going to make sure there's no fender benders on the highway. So we try to, you know, we want the Federal Reserve to smooth results. We, we want soft landings. We don't want any recessions. And recessions are, are an important part of the natural balance of the economy. And so we've, essentially, by putting all the stimulus out there, we've created an uh, a period where and, and i keep coming back to uh, and i haven't been able to find it on the internet a little gif but i keep coming back to the uh, roadrunner cartoons <laughs> and you you have uh you know the Roadrunner takes a curve and Wily e. coyote goes out over the edge um, but sometimes he's able to save himself and get back and each time we add more stimulus he's another step further off the cliff and eventually he gets to that cliff he gets far enough off that he can't get back. And then he falls, you know, and of course an anvil lands on top of him right after that. So that's what I'm worried about is, is that that will sap growth, you know, for a long time. And we'll have to bring in somebody as a fed chair like Paul Volcker that uh, was actually to be actually willing to be the adult in the room, raise interest rates, make it, make it a challenge uh, to get the economy so that it was sustainable again. I mean, we, we don't allow creative destruction anymore. You know, nobody's allowed to fail except for Hertz. Um, you know, I mean, why were the airlines saved, but Hertz wasn't? I mean, that's, it, it all comes back to politics, I think. And, and so those are, those are the things that, that I'm worried about. I think, uh, you know, it's, we're a long ways away from being willing to have that adult in the room. So I'm that's kind of an- a Debbie Downer on that question. <laughs> <laughs>
0: hey, no worries. In, in all honesty, that's what we're looking for. That was one of the principles you kind of brought upon in choosing your career was honesty. And that's, that's what we need in, in this time. Because I mean, you know, if you really look at everything that we have right now, I mean, you can try and sugarcoat everything that's going on. And in the long run, what good is that really going to do for us? Um, we do need to, you know, kind of highlight, exactly what's going on and what the problems are because like you said i can totally see it in the financial sense but also in like like a psychological sense as a society sometimes that we don't see the need for failure um because failure is often one of our best teachers i mean we saw that in the 2008 financial crisis failure was one of the biggest teachers in that whole entire thing and changed so much and what was wrong what we were doing before um, so yeah, I, let, me, let me
1: interrupt right there. Yeah, I, go for it. I, I really agree with that. I think that's why it's so important for extracurricular activities when, when a student's growing up. You know, we've, we've gotten the grade inflation to where when, when I was managing a student hiring program, you would know, essentially look at the Nebraska students and say, okay, who got an A from, from Dr. Ramsey? you know, that's the top student because everybody else, you know, everybody across the board had A's in every other class there, were, but there would be B's and sometimes C's there. And, and there was that just that one class that, that was a differentiator. And, and that's probably still true today based on <laughs> nodding your head here. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's intriguing.
0: Yeah, no, I couldn't, you know second that even i i second that as many times as it takes that is totally true in, in all aspects and from what i've heard currently dr ramsey actually teaches the graduate student classes for life contingencies now i um, but he is actually going to start teaching a process a process class i believe it's this dope i don't remember it starts with an s like this stochastic stochastic that's it yes he's going to start teaching that for the undergrad level okay. um, next well, semester that'll be a
1: challenge for you guys i'm actually working in i'll give a plug here uh Dr. Ramsey's working with uh, Professor Vots on the uh, Actuarial Research Conference this summer, and and I'm actually helping him with uh, um, bringing in some of the practitioner speakers. We're doing some uh, a COVID track and uh, climate change and uh, AI, um, and then there'll be a, a bunch of papers presented as well. So I, that'll be one that that hopefully your listeners will will look at. It's it's. I think it's $25 if you get in over the next uh, few weeks. So it's pretty reasonable and you can watch all the, all the sessions. I think they'll be pretty good. We've got uh, uh, Dr. Michael Osterholm from the University of Minnesota to on face the nation last week. So I, I think there'll be some really good sessions. And uh, I mean, I'll be, I'll be doing a session on, uh, uh, on COVID uh, along with with Dale Hall from the Society of Actuaries, but I've been been helping Dr. Ramsey on that. So it's, it's been interesting to uh, uh, interact with him on a more regular basis uh, over the last uh, couple of uh, uh, weeks here
0: that's awesome and yeah no like you said we're going to be having that conference here in a few and we've already you know started looking to really develop a lot of good opportunities for students and professionals in the field to expose themselves to all these ever-growing risks that we keep seeing popping up so I like the plug I'll, I'll, I'll take it <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what potential short-term impacts do you see COVID-19 leaving in the actuarial space and finance and risk management space
1: yeah, there's quite a few, um, and I'm glad you split this and, and said short term first because uh, you know there. I think the the long term ones are are uh, we need some time to think about them. Um, but from the short term, we're seeing a lot of uh, movement towards telehealth for medicine, where um, people are allowed to use it now where they were blocked before, and especially in a in a rural state like Nebraska, that has long term ramifications as well. Um, you know, I think coming out of this, we really need to to take a step back and compare the way that uh, our healthcare system uh, compared to other countries, you know, where you've got in, in England, you know, a single payer, it's a little bit easier to coordinate a lot of the, these things. In the U.S., we had a bunch of doctors who were overwhelmed by how busy they were, and you had other Doctors and and their staff, you know, like a urology clinic, where you know they were laid off because you know people weren't able to uh, uh, weren't willing to to come in and do these uh, uh, elective surgeries and elective uh, uh, treatments. So I think that's going to be uh, interesting. The um, you know the healthcare workers have just been heroes, the ones that have been been asked to step up and and. <clears throat> You know, we haven't provided them with <clears throat> enough protective equipment. You know, there have been times where, you know, some of the, the nurses are, are being let go or, or being, you know, uh, told not to say certain things if they don't have enough protective equipment. I, I think that we haven't treated our healthcare heroes nearly as well as, as we should. I, I'm worried about some of the rural hospitals. They're running big deficits. And, and I'm afraid they're going to be forced to close. I mean, that's going to be tied to that telehealth. But there's still um, you, there are still things that you need somebody locally to to provide in these rural rural hospitals. And then you know for, for COVID, and we called this early that you know most of the current impact is on the asset side. And I think we we really need to think through. Um, and this will be true for climate change as well. Uh, you know how this impacts annuities and and pensions as well, and not just you know we the big focus has been on health but the the life insurance side you know the excess claims haven 't been a, a big percentage of of surplus where it 's not you know unless there 's a real tiny company that 's just only writing you know universal life policies uh, they 're probably going to make it through pretty well um, the The issue is is more. Um, you know, how do you go forward? So you want me to just jump into the long-term one?
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. that was actually going to be my next question. <laughs> what, what do you think the long-term implications will be of COVID? So yeah, go ahead.
1: Well, the long-term, one, one of the things that, that I've talked about in some of my presentations on COVID is I'll, I'll pull out a slide from a 2009 presentation. And essentially say, look, you know, none of this is new you know, we were talking about supply chains. We were talking about impact on the assets. One of the things on, on supply chains, it's interesting how I thought that maybe some of the 2009 things had been solved because the, the big issue then was, uh, expected to be, um, there's two, two definitions of supply chain. I didn't realize this then, but I do now there's, there's the, how often things get delivered. So like, the issue that I'm thinking of uh, in New York in 2009, they were talking about how uh, surgical gloves and oxygen were delivered like three times a day to a major hospital. And if they didn't get that delivery, they would probably run out within six hours. So that one I thought had been fixed, but I've just seen uh, articles in the last day or two talking about oxygen shortages. So apparently it, it hasn't completely. The other one is the international supply chain You know, in terms of being able to get this equipment in when everybody uh, internationally is looking for the same same equipment and who's who pays for it. And so so you need to have more stockpiling, more things set up ahead of time. I mean, some of the the groups got lucky early on in that uh, there were groups and companies in California that were buying these N95 masks because of the wildfires over the last couple of years. And so Google and Facebook and some of those companies had stockpiled their own supplies for their own employees and they provided those to, to hospitals and and healthcare workers. So that was great. But now, you know, wildfire season has started up again and they need to replenish their stockpiles again too. I, I think uh, nursing homes, that whole um, industry is going to need to get redesigned. Uh, it's going to be more expensive. They need to come up with ways to, uh, you know, have it be less expensive and still have separation, better, better air supply, things like that. I think long-term care tied to that. Um, I can see where a combination product where a long-term care is offered within a universal life or, an, or deferred annuity might work, but a long-term care by itself, I'm just not sure how you, you would do that going forward. Cause you can't guarantee the price. Cause as we just said, the nursing home price is probably going to double. Um, so how does that work with the, uh, with the insurance companies? So um, I think one of the things on the, on the finance side, we're seeing a lot of companies uh, not give earnings guidance because of COVID, which makes a lot of sense. But I think a lot of them are going to use this as an excuse to, to say, well, we're not going to give earnings guidance going forward, that that's going to be a process that, that has ended. I think vaccine development is going to be, be revisited. I, I think uh, going forward, you know, we need to come up with incentives that are aligned with with health as opposed to aligned with private equity profit margins. Uh, That's been a real frustrating thing. I mean, there's some ideas out there that, you know, they they, um, develop the vaccine and then the government buys the patent type of a thing. And you almost have to go to something like that uh, or else, you're going to have some some uh, vaccines or prescriptions uh, get get overpriced. Um, you know, and the other thing, stimulus so far has really favored the big companies. So you're gonna you're gonna see even more concentration of bigger companies relative to small companies, and and that's not a positive. Most of the job growth that comes over time comes from the the small business. And and I'm really uncomfortable with with the um, incentives that that sets up. So so that that gives a little bit of a, a flavor of some of the things that I'm looking at.
0: So overall, there is a whole number of potential implications that COVID could have. It could have on um, the health insurance, life insurance industry, vaccine development, and incentives for that. Um, and like you said, the stimulus portion, like you said, it's really heavily favored big companies and kind of making sure that we like they make through like make it through um so it's incredibly interesting to kind of really kind of talk about these things with with you especially because you've had so much exposure to every single one of these aspects so you know probably one of the one of the best people to know about each and every single specific aspect because you've had a flavor of each aspect um going forward so it's it's incredibly interesting to see. And as you know, actuaries love to speculate about uncertainty. That's one of our specialties. Yeah, and it is. <laughs> exactly. So this is this is an actuary's, I, unfortunately, I, I don't like saying like it's an actuary's dream because like obviously COVID is, is a terrible, um, you know, kind of pandemic that we're going through. But this is, it's one of the things that we love to do is we want to produce a better outcome for people. And COVID brought an opportunity for that. And hopefully we can capitalize upon that. In the yeah,
1: that's that win-win. Um, exactly. That hopefully, we can figure out ways that, that will improve healthcare at the same time as improving uh, job prospects.
0: Exactly. Hopefully, we can figure something out. So, as I said before, you have received the de- designation of FSA, your Sarah, which is the Chartered Enterprise Risk Analyst, and also a CFA. Um, so, for an actuary within the investment space, What benefits did the SARA and CFA certification provide for you that the actuarial credentials did not?
1: Well, let me give just a little bit of background first. I mean, I I, uh, actually took the exams for the the CFA. I was actually part of the group that uh, was the first group of actuaries where our experience counted towards their experience requirement. Uh, the, uh, John McGinn was the, uh, uh, chief investment officer at Mutual Omaha at the time. And he was also president of the predecessor to the CFA Institute. And, and he was working enough with us to where he was able to get that through. So I'm always indebted to John. Um, but what, what I noticed, um, you know, I finished up my, uh, FSA and actually carried the books for level one of the CFA. There's three levels there carried the books to my FAC and was, I remember I was sitting out at the pool before the FAC started reading probably an econ book or something like that and, and getting my studying going because um, you know, those exams were kind of on the same cycle. And so I only had a couple months to, to prepare. Uh, the CERA, I was actually on the board. I was in my first of three years on the board when the ERM question came through the board, and so I actually chaired the ERM strategy task force um, that that uh, eventually led to um, the the CERA and the the um, uh, ERM specialty within the uh, the SOA syllabus. Um, so I didn't actually take those exams. Um, I actually wrote the module um, for both uh, the risk management and the investment the original one, now they've evolved it since then, uh, to where I'm sure it's much better than than what I had. But what I was trying to do was get more of a practitioner's approach into the module. I fear we had the books for the theoretical side, you know, so I would put things in there that was was talking about, well, here's here's how you'd actually use it and how you'd use it to manage a, a, a block. Um, but the main example that I'd have of how it helped me um, would be on the CFA side, that I was trying to to start asset liability management at the company, and you know it wasn 't that doors were were shut in the investment department; um, they were willing to work with me. but once I sat down and, and committed to taking their exams, the CFA exams, the doors were wide open and and I, it was much more collaborative um, because I knew their their tech, you know their, uh, their, the words that they used for things. I mean, part of my my job as it went on, you know, at one point, I was working for for an accountant, and you know, I'd be in meetings with with him and the investment folks and the actuaries, actuaries, and either the investment person or the actuary would talk, and then the accountant would look at me and say, "Okay, interpret that for me. What did he just say?" And and it was interesting because that it showed just a, a willingness to to learn. Um, what other people were, were kind of going through. And, and I found that really helpful. Um, you know, with the CERA, I mean, I was, a, I was one of the thought leaders, one of the first 40 uh, that was, was credentialed. Uh, we then went through, and I, I think there's about 300 people who were brought in as uh, uh, experienced practitioners. And I was part of the group that reviewed those people to sh- see that they had their, I, I believe it was three years experience in ERM. Um, and, and so I've been involved with that process along, along the way. Um, and then, you know, it, it does tick a box with clients to say that you're a, a CERA. Uh, I encourage students to, to get that along the way, as opposed to trying to go back later and add it. Um, you know, I know the module, I mean, not that anything's easy, but the modules, you know, you just do it and you get through it and, and, and it's, it's all good. Um, you know, to where the main addition is an exam. And it's a whole lot easier to take that exam when you're still in the, in the thought set of, of taking exams than trying to come back later. I came back later and, and took some um, like a FLMI exams, which are nothing compared to the actuarial exams. Um, but what I found was I'd get into the exam itself And, and I'd space out, I'd start thinking about grocery lists and where I needed to be and where my kids needed to be. And, and, you know, it's something that they give you like two hours to take it. And, you know, an hour in, I should have been done for half an hour by half an hour already. And I'm, I'm only on like question 20 because I'm distracted. So it's, it's one of those things you want to get, you know, if you're going to get credentials and they're, they're serious credentials, you want to get those done uh, fairly early.
0: Fair enough, and that's awesome. I didn't know that you were one of the, like the first people credential with the Sarah certification. That's incredible, and that you were you know kind of on the front end of how that began to really evolve within the SOA. So that's that's really cool to kind of hear. And then so kind of like what I'm I heard from the CFA essentially that helped you provide like I guess a bridge between accounting and actuarial and like a communication way. Like well, between kind of,
1: between investments
0: between investments yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. so like it was essentially a gateway into other ways of thinking and kind of explaining okay this is what we think in the actuarial side and this is what we think on the finance side and you were kind of like the bridge in between that and you had to understand both ways of thinking um, am i correct in saying yeah
1: no? i mean the other thing it does is it gives you a peer reviewer of your work people who think a little bit differently than you <clears throat> but it's still similar enough that you know you can go to them and say, "Hey, I'm thinking about this. How would you think about it and And they'd come back with their ideas and you could kind of pull the best from both
0: gotcha, and like i like I've read in many places before the more perspectives you bring to an idea, the better and more fine that idea is going to get, and the more effective that will be whenever it's implemented so that's what yeah it's if you can if you ends. can
1: you know at some point learn about just the mental models concept where you don't have to know the details of everything, but just having, um, you know, a high level understanding of what else is out there from different fields. Um, Charlie Munger, who you may know is the the number two at Berkshire Hathaway. Um, you know, he has funded uh, a whole grad dorm at university of Michigan, which is where he, he got his graduate degree. Um, but he required that all the, different disciplines be roomed together, that there wouldn't be separate floors for you know, STEM versus English versus foreign languages for that very reason to try to get them to think uh, back and forth. One, one of the neat things working at a company was that the parking garage was, was a little bit of a walk from where most of the officers were, were working. And so you'd run into people on that walk over to your car or on the way back in in the morning. And you, you'd have some of those same discussions, you know, you'd run into a marketing person or, or a IT or, or an accountant or somebody else and and just say, you know, you just kind of get into a discussion, Hey, I'm working on this. What, you know, are you guys involved with this? And and it just cuts corners and, and cuts that whole bureaucracy down to where you can get things, get a lot more done, uh, than, than you could otherwise.
0: Exactly. Cause I know actuarial, um, sometimes we are victims of this. We always like to keep everything in our narrow scope of vision. And we always like looking at it, like the, our specific aspects within the model, but then sometimes we, we kind of get lost in those. I know I I've done, I've been a victim of that in the past and in my internship, but like, that's okay. Um, you know, to know that you're going to fall into that, but you need to be able to Make sure you bring other perspectives to the table because there are so many different perspectives you need in order for business to be successful. So thank exactly you. right. Thank you. Um, so I'm very curious about this question. I I know I, I, I emailed you this question before just so we can get a good answer for this because I don't know the answer to this question. So I'm very interested to see what you have uh, for me for this one. So as a professor in business do you believe an MBA for an actuary would accomplish a similar goal um, as these certifications?
1: Well, let me me share it. At Creighton, what I've been doing is I'm helping them develop an ERM program. Uh, And so we've taught an introductory introduction to to ERM class where we had some practitioners, um, but they opened it up to the MBA students as well. And then I've also been been involved with the... um, their uh, MIMFA program, their master's in, um, it's like fine, finance or the part that I'm involved with, they, they actually mirror the CFA syllabus and, and allow uh, students to go through that and, and have discussion boards. But it's all, both, both programs are online. And um, what I found with the ERM one was that it was extremely valuable to have the MBA students in the ERM class where they're seeing something about risk management when they're 22, as opposed to first seeing it when they're 30 or 35, to where I think that gives them a big uh, step up in their their career progress. Um, For an actuary to get an MBA, I don't see, I know people have done it, um, but I don't see as much value. I think there's more value in getting a a different credential, like a CFA charter or, or something like that um, or going into a, you know, if you're going to get a a master's, get it in a different program, you know, like, uh, um, you know, if you're a health actuary, maybe get a master's in public health or something like that, I think would be better. Although, you know, some of the MBA programs, I, I think you can, you can shop around and find some that are easier than others. Um, so I, I would guess that, you know, if you want one that's, you just want the degree you can find one of those, but if you want a good one, like, like the one at Nebraska, or the one at Creighton, you're going to have to put some work in. Um, And, and you have to balance that against, okay, there's no way you have time to do that while you're taking exams. And once you're done with exams, well, you know, life happens there too. um, To where, you know, it, it, I think there are places where it can be useful. It may be if if you're going to go into being a a marketing actuary, it might be useful. There might be some roles there, but for the actuary that stays in more traditional roles or or more technical roles, and I I would view ERM more of a STEM role, um, I don't see a lot of additional value. I I don't know. Do you disagree with that?
0: I honestly have no uh, really opinion on this. I've always just been very curious about um, what people's perspectives on this because I remember going into like my freshman year I was like oh I want to get my certification and also an MBA. Um, Now I'm not exactly too sure if that's exactly what I'm looking to do because I've talked with a lot of people and a lot of people have completely polarizing uh, opinions on this. Like some people are like all for it like go for it. It helped me so much in my consulting or whatever part of business they were and then other people are like no it really didn't add any value to me the exams actually provided me with a way to work up in my role um and also the certifications um so i'm always very curious to kind of see people's perspectives on this because i've interviewed some people about you know what they think about the MBA, and they've said like something where they think it's an incredibly useful thing to have um but like I've interviewed people also like you that have said, "Eh, it's not really exactly, you know, something that an actuary should look to really pursue. Um, Definitely look to expand on those other credentials that are there for us. Um,
1: I think the the MBA is really useful for somebody who has like a a science background or something that's a non-business background. To where as they get up to where they're going to be involved in the senior levels of a company and having to to do the, the finances and things like that, I think it can be really useful for that group. But for an actuary, you should already be getting that in your undergraduate.
0: Yeah, no, I, I that one I have heard is if you have did go through like College of um, Arts and Sciences, like just a strict mathematics degree within actuarial mathematics, then it would be a good transition to go into an MBA program to get that business exposure. That one I have heard. So, yeah, no, that one. That's very true um, in that regard, because right now, like, you know, in Nebraska, our actuarial science undergraduate is either through the college of business or the college of arts and sciences and I want to say I believe the majority of students go through the college of business to get that business perspective so it is incredibly helpful to do that as well on at an undergraduate level at least from personal experience so far (laughs) yeah so like I said before in your resume you have accomplished a great deal and we're incredibly you know thankful to have you on the podcast here today to provide your insights Um, But I'm kind of curious what your answer is to this one as well. So you've accomplished a great deal throughout your career, as we've mentioned multiple times before. For those of us looking to become respected individuals in our field, similar to yourself, what do you suggest young professionals do to keep learning and progressing?
1: Well, I I hit on it earlier that it's important to be a lifelong learner. You know, that's probably not a surprise to hear that. I, I think it's really important to choose your spouse well. Um, I'm incredibly lucky there, uh, you know working as a as a team. you know if if I have some place to be or she has some place to be, we we work together and and try to try to make it work as as well as we can. Um, I think it's important to to stay involved with the professional organizations in a volunteer capacity. I, I think you can you can learn a lot, and that can become a really good networking group for you uh, that have, again, people with different perspectives than you do, um, you know, and, and to where you just, just keep learning from them. And, and, you know, I think there's, I can call people in the industry and, and they call me back and there's a reason for that, you know, because I've invested the time to do that. I, I remember, uh, you know, Cecil who used to be a professor down at down at Lincoln and was, was my boss for a number of years, loved working with him. Another one of my mentors, you know, he, he would talk about that, you know, in terms of that, you know, his boss just loved it when, you know, he'd have a question that he knew, you know, he needed to get somebody maybe with an international background and Cecil would say, Oh yeah, I'll call so-and-so. And, And, you know, they'd call him back or they'd pick up the phone right when he called, (laughs) you know, it's just incredible how, how important that can be kind of on the, on the other side of that. You want to, things you want to avoid, is a company with a culture that <clears throat> your company does things best and you don't need to learn anything from anybody else uh there's a number of insurance companies in particular that I'm uh, I won't min- I won't name here um but that I worry about that that you know it's kind of when a student ends up there they never come out you know you never hear from them again and so from one perspective they don't ever share their knowledge with anybody else and from the other side, you worry about somebody who's just internal that twenty years later are there external risks, you know emerging risks that that they 're not picking up on so I, I think those are, are are important to you know always you always want to be learning
0: very true, and i 'm glad you kind of touched upon that whole <laughs> aspect of being able to develop a whole new perspective based on other people 's perspectives. Um, because like you said, um, that's one of the key factors that drives companies to stay in business is they're able to change with the times and identify certain risks that maybe an actuarial department might not see, um, and in a finance account, like a finance portion, will see. Um, so, like that's one of the big things that we have to to really see. Um, and like you said, I'm really glad you brought up the whole building your network. As a student um, within the actuarial community, um, I think this is key, especially right now with how COVID impacted so many job prospects and internships. Um, being able to build your network and leverage your network in this time is critical for students to do. And even past you, you know your undergraduate at Nebraska or Michigan or wherever you end up going for your undergraduate for actuarial science or data science or anything like that. I'm really glad you touched upon that because, like, the actuarial community um, from your experience, I, I would like to know. I've I've heard it's a, like a smaller community and it's very a tightly knit community, and we're all here to help each other. Is is that what you've experienced?
1: Yeah, a lot of actuaries are are willing to to work with other people. One of the things as a, as a risk management uh, focus that I've had is that we've worked closely with the the Casualty Society, and so I I work a lot more. Um, through volunteer roles primarily, but I work a lot more with, with casualty folks um, than almost any other life actuary does. There's, there's only a few people who actually get to cross that. And and again, we can learn from each other. You know, one of the things that I see from them is, you know, they look more at, at distributions and they use the power law for a lot of things. Uh, it models, earthquakes and things like that very well. That once you get out into the tail, the distributions that life actuaries use don't work very well. And so, I'd like to see us work a lot more uh, across those practice areas to <clears throat> to see when we get into pandemics or or other emerging risks, you know, how can we use different distributions out in the tail to to make that work?
0: Exactly, and that's that's so cool that you're able to work with Casualty Actuary Society um, actuaries whenever you're kind of focusing in a life industry like that's incredibly you know beneficial to be able to gather their perspectives because um from what i've seen so far and i i don't know if this is true or not um the soa and cas doesn't really have in, much in the way of like interactions between other actuaries um is is that has that been a thing of like that have you've experienced um because I don't, I don't know exactly as a student
1: Yeah, that's a deep question that goes back years and years. Um, You know, they tried to make another run at at combining the two organizations last year, and and I wasn't, you know, involved at the senior levels at all all during that discussion. I I hope it happens at some point. I think, um, you know, the life and pension and health uh, actuaries have a lot they can learn from the PNC actuaries, and I think the same is true in the other direction. Um, you know, I do one of the, the research projects that I do is an annual emerging risk survey. And it's actually was sponsored this last year by, by the SOA, uh, by the Joint Risk Management Section, and then also the CAS and the Canadians, the CIA. Um, so, so I've actually in the last year presented at major conferences for all three of those organizations. And, and I just love the, the networking. You know, I, I mean, I get to go out to dinner the night before with with people who, again, you know, they, they look at things a little bit differently. They have different hot buttons, you know, different issues that are, are going on. And I, and then, you know, that networking, that's one of the things that I miss, you know, with when we're doing things virtually is you don't get the chance to really sit down and, and talk to people. Um, so uh, it, it's interesting. We can all learn from each other.
0: Exactly. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause we could all learn from each other. And like I said, that we keep coming back to this idea of, Different perspectives um, that would cause you know one of the best ways we can really develop is if we all kind of collaborate together and learn from each other so that's perfect and you touched a little bit upon this at the very end the whole networking aspect so what advice would you offer those who have lost internships or jobs in this current COVID crisis
1: well the first thing would be to keep your head up I mean it's nothing that you did <laughs> You know, it's and and I'm really interested after <clears throat> after the summer's over to to better understand the companies that continued their their internships. How did they make it work? Because <clears throat> I, I I I can see a lot of challenges, especially you know you bring somebody in in house and you give them something and you can sit there right with them. Um, where when you're not able to do that. Uh, it makes it a lot more challenging. So hopefully we can get some best practices out of that in, in case we ever have to do this again. Um, but I, I think for, for those who are not in an internship right now, I think you need to find something to do. You know, keep your head up and, and, and not just mope around and watch TV all summer. Um, I think you can, you know, with the actuarial exams, they're in small enough bites that you could, you could sit for an exam uh, if you're at, at the right level. Um, you know, read a book, pick out a, a book on behavioral finance or, um, you know, find an author that you like. There's, there's a zillion, I can't keep up with the books that, that I want to read. You know, I've, somebody recommended a book to me yesterday. I said, yeah, I'll put it right on the top of the stack with, you know, I've got a, like 12 books already there. Um, you know, so that, that's something or, or listen to webinars. There's all kinds of free webinars out there right now and you might need to reach out to, you know, the company that, that you were going to do the, the internship with and ask them for ideas of, of what they um, would encourage you to, to, to listen to, because you may not know how to get access to some of these webinars uh, that are free and that, you know, I'm sure they'd be happy, you know, as long as you don't jump in and ask 50 questions. Um, but, you know, you got webinars, you got podcasts that are out there. I know one of the Questions that I get every year when I come down to the senior practicum class at, at Nebraska is, you know, what podcasts do you listen to? You know, and I'll share four or five, and <clears throat> you know, there's usually somebody in the class who listens to a couple of them, and they oh, I'll try those, and then I ask them the same thing, what are you guys listening to? And and there's usually a couple students that'll stay after and and will share that with me. Um, but another thing that I think that I would encourage would be um, for students to to seek out a mentor. To visit with, you know, whether it's a once a month thing during the summer. You know, if you had an internship lined up, you could probably ask them and say, hey, is there is there somebody that I can talk to um, just to keep up my skill set? I know a friend of mine has retired from from Nationwide and, and they actually have hired him to come in, you know, when they were working on site. And I, I think they're continuing this even when they're virtually he's in one day a week. Mentoring people, I mean, he's just brilliant and and has all kinds of good things to share with these these students. Um, but I think we need to do do more of that. And make sure it doesn't lapse just because we're not all in the same room. So I, I you know, I I know we're running short on time here, but uh, I, I really appreciate you asking me to to share some of my thoughts. Um, you know, I'm not probably not that far from from retiring. And and it's nice to sit down and 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 kind of get some of these things on on record, um, to where hopefully they'll they'll help the next generation. I mean, one one of the things I tell every young student is, you know, go find the old geezer when you start at a new job, before they leave, because they're going to tell you stories from the beginning of their career that nobody's thinking about right now. When we price for products, you know, there there was. Uh, the story I always use on this was a couple of years ago, Omaha had some, some river flooding on the Missouri and people go, oh, this never happened, never happened, never happened before. And, and then as soon as it happened, you know, there's a story in the paper saying, well, in 1952, <laughs> it's like, okay, <laughs> before they're saying it never happened. Well, it obviously did happen. And if you talk to that old timer, they probably remember that. And those are things that we need to price for, at least from the capital perspective. Um, To where we can again coming back to who can we learn from that has a different perspective or different set of knowledge. So I appreciate you asking me and and good luck with uh, with the club and and with your studies and uh, hopefully you'll be back on campus here in the fall.
0: Yes, thank you so much for the kind words. But um, we're incredibly, you know, happy to have you on here today. Because I've heard a lot uh, about you, and I, I briefly met you last—I think it was last year—in the actuarial club meeting. Whenever I did a little skit about professionalism or something like that, yeah, in one of the actuarial yeah. club meetings. Um, but we're incredibly thankful to have you on here today and providing all of your insights for our students and all the actuarial community as of right now. Cause like, as you said, this is one of the best times we, um, we can really grow. Um, Cause in all, in all honesty, one of the best times you can grow is whenever you're put into these situations that you are uncomfortable and it's not exactly the most ideal situations. This is where we get stronger and this is where we get better. And like you said, we gotta keep our heads up. It's not our fault. We got to make sure that you still find something to do throughout this time. And also, like you said, this is one of the perfect times to sit for an exam and study for material. I mean, if you are out there and you have time on your hands, this is one of the best ways you can really get ahead of the curve and start really pushing yourself to be better, which is great. But Max, thank you so much for coming on and providing your insights and, everything actuarial for our students. This was awesome. You you
1: bet, Matt. And just just remember that everybody should be wearing a mask right now.
0: (laughs) Very true. If you're outside, be wearing a mask. (laughs) Well, that wraps up all we have today. Thank you all for listening and everyone stay safe out there. And as Max said, be wearing a mask.